Chapter 11 Inner City Violence and Deprivation Clapham was an eye-opener for me, even though I'd already done 18 months of operational policing at Sutton. Inner city policing involves dealing with the human consequences of trauma, poverty, deprivation, addiction, low life expectations, violent and abusive relationships, inadequate housing, poor mental health and highly dysfunctional families 24-7. As police officers, we tend to intervene in people's lives when things have reached or gone beyond crisis point. Crisis point for many people only comes along with events like the loss of a well-paid job, finding out that their long-term partner has been having an affair, or learning that a loved one has an incurable illness. All these things are individually horrible, but the people we were dealing with had much of this going on as well as other chronic issues that made their lives pretty hellish. There's often a sense of inner conflict for police officers working in these kinds of areas. On one hand, you desperately want to work in these places because you know it's going to be interesting and exciting. On the other hand, you will frequently go home despairing at the injustices served up by life and the hostility with which you are treated by many fellow human beings. The police get sworn at, spat at, lied to and frequently physically assaulted because they are the only people in society who will stand in front of someone and say, no, you're not going to do that as it's against the law. And if I have to, I will physically stop you from doing it. When there's a crisis, we're the ones who get called and we have to sort it out. Many people simply do not want to abide by the standards and systems that make Britain a functional and tolerably peaceful place to live. For such people, it was often the case that their parents or carers had little control over them. Their teachers were so exasperated with their disruptive behaviour that they had to exclude them from school and they challenged every authority figure they came across. For these people, it is down to the police to enforce the law and tell them no. And if the police can't do that, then we're all in trouble. And it's not just people from low socioeconomic backgrounds who behave in this way. I regularly dealt with entitled, obnoxious people, usually men, who had good jobs, drove expensive cars and lived in nice houses. Their offending tended to be less obvious and either took place behind closed doors at home or in the workplace or in the form of aggressive or drunken behaviour on the road. Academics and journalists often criticise the police and provide explanations about how bad behaviour can be the result of environmental factors such as deprivation, neglect, fetal alcohol syndrome and social exclusion. I understand that these can all influence an individual's behaviour. However, such assessments do not provide practical advice for how the police should actually act. For example, how should they deal with a very angry, alienated, intoxicated 17-year-old who has tried to assault a doctor trying to deliver his 16-year-old girlfriend's baby simply because he takes exception to the doctor touching her vagina? I use this example because I actually dealt with this exact situation, but there are thousands more situations just like this. It's frustrating when you read agenda-driven headlines in newspapers by journalists who do not provide or have access to all the facts, 
pontificating on situations that they've never had to deal with and offering judgments on the actions of police officers who have made split-second decisions in a chaotic situation playing out in front of them at 2am. I would love to take a journalist out on a normal bread-and-butter policing call and see how they deal with such a situation. There you go. See that really angry-looking, coked-up bloke over there in the corner of the pub with a broken bottle in his hand threatening customers? I want you to approach him, talk to him, and if necessary, bring him into custody in a way that's lawful and where neither you nor he sustains unnecessary injuries. Or, see that 17-year-old with eight previous convictions for violence running away from that stolen car with its pockets full of cash and a Rolex from a robbery victim? I want you to chase him through the streets and then arrest him without being heavy-handed. When I was in Clapham in the early 1990s, police officers' safety, or rather lack of it, became a massive issue, particularly in the major cities. It's hard to believe it now, but at this time we patrolled day and night unarmed with no body armour, no CS gas, no baton worth talking about, and no GPS-enabled communications device that showed exactly where we were when we got into trouble. I can remember hearing police officers screaming on the radio trying to summon help. All that we could do was quickly get to the general location that they'd been sent to and try to find them, or wait for a member of the public to dial 999 to tell us what was going on and the exact location of where it was happening. In hindsight, it was disgraceful that this situation was never challenged properly or remedied by those in positions of power. During this period, many Met officers were killed or seriously injured on duty. In November 1991, Sergeant Alan King was stabbed to death by Nicholas Vernage, who had just been released from prison. Vernage had murdered his girlfriend days earlier and then murdered a man whose home he was burgling. Alan, who was on patrolling alone, had become suspicious of Vernage and challenged him. Vernage turned on him and stabbed him multiple times. The following day, on the other side of London, patrolling officers John Jenkinson and Simon Castry spotted Vernage in a car and challenged him. Vernage stabbed them both multiple times, causing horrendous injuries. They survived only as a result of receiving rapid medical attention. Shortly after, Vernage was apprehended and later sentenced to 25 years. Shortly after this, in December 1991, Detective Constable Jim Morrison was stabbed to death whilst trying to detain a handbag thief in Covent Garden, central London. Jim's killer has never been brought to justice. Then tragedy came to Clapham in October 1993, when my good friend and close colleague PC Pat Dunn was shot dead in cold blood by notorious gangster Gary Nelson, who moments earlier had murdered William Danso in his home. Danso had been a bouncer and was murdered for the crime of disrespecting Nelson by refusing him entry to a nightclub. Pat had been attending a routine incident in the house opposite and on hearing gunfire walked outside just as Nelson and his two accomplices were leaving Danso's house. They shot Pat dead and ran away laughing. Four months later, in February 1994, 
Sergeant Derek Robertson, was stabbed to death when he tackled three men who were escaping from attempted post office robbery in Croydon, South London. And in April 1995, PC Philip Walters was called to assist a domestic disturbance in Empress Avenue, Ilford. As he was attempting to handcuff the suspect, a gun was drawn and PC Walters was shot dead. In October 1997, 25-year-old PC Nina McKay was stabbed to death by a paranoid schizophrenic in Stratford, East London, during a routine arrest. The murder of a police officer on duty anywhere in the UK has a huge impact on all serving officers who collectively grieve for their fallen colleague. However, the impact of Pat's death on everyone at Clapham was profound. We were a very tight-knit policing family and we went out day and night to deal with difficult and dangerous incidents across South London literally in our shirt sleeves. This murder was particularly despicable Pat was not trying to apprehend Nelson, but had heard the gunshots and arrived on the scene. He was outnumbered three to one, and the trio were armed with two guns. They shot Pat in the chest, who was unarmed with no protective equipment. He literally didn't have a chance. Pat was one of the nicest people I've ever met. He was a very gentle man, in many ways totally unsuited to policing. But this weakness was also his strength because he inspired great trust in those he dealt with. He had joined the police rather late in life after a career in teaching. He was very softly spoken, had an easygoing manner and great wisdom as a result of spending over 20 years in the classroom. He was particularly great with kids and older people and this made him a natural fit for the role of the permanent beat officer sorting out the daily issues that arise in local communities with patience and good humour. It was an appalling injustice that Pat was murdered in such a callous way. Nelson managed to evade justice until 12 years later in 2006 when he was finally convicted and sentenced to 35 years in prison. I hope that every day of those 35 years is a thoroughly miserable experience. He'll certainly have plenty of time to think about what a complete coward he was, unfit to even stand in the same room as a good man like Pat Dunn. Pat's death and avoidable deaths of serving police officers before and since made many in the police believe that legislators and opinion formers were ultimately not interested in supporting and protecting them. This would be proven to be much more than just a suspicion 20 years later, during Theresa May's time as Home Secretary and Prime Minister, when everyone finally realised that the protective covenant between the British Police Service and the government had irretrievably broken down. The debate over whether the British police should be armed rumbled on for the length of my time in the police. I'm convinced that the police should not be routinely armed, and there are several reasons that I believe this. Firstly, I believe that the routine carrying of firearms would create a barrier between the police and the public because most of the police's interactions are non-confrontational, whether with victims, witnesses or people just going about their business. It's not just the mere appearance of firearms that has this effect. It's the fact that police officers would inevitably have to change their behaviour and approach when responding to crime 
to take account for the fact that they're carrying a deadly weapon. Secondly, if the police are armed, there's a substantially more risk of innocent members of the public being mistakenly shot, or for that matter, police officers being disarmed and shot with their own weapons. And finally, there are some police officers that I've worked with over the years who I wouldn't trust with a sharpened stick, never mind a gun. In Clapham, we had run-ins with very dangerous people almost every day. And because the policing culture was about proactivity at that time, we actively sought these people out. We didn't get tied up in ridiculous risk assessments in the way that police officers do today. We just got on with it. Clapham and Brixton were home to many major drug dealers who supplied a small army of street dealers. Many of them carried guns, and they were not afraid to use them on rivals or on the police if we got in their way. We hunted these people down day and night, as well as the scores of active burglars, street robbers and car thieves who were offending on our patch. But it was the drug dealers who posed the biggest risk to everyone. They were collectively referred to as yardies, which was derived from the Jamaican Patois term for backyard. Many yardies were British born and bred, but just as many shuttled backwards and forwards across the Atlantic and had connections in the United States as well as other parts of Europe. Some of the most experienced officers in Clapham had an encyclopedic knowledge of these drug gangs and had dealt with some of them many times between periods of imprisonment and periodic deportations. But they would then pop back up in London using a new name with a new set of identity documents. The Met introduced a number of major initiatives to try to stem the increasing violence and murders arising from Yardie activity. Operations Lucy and Dale House were set up and later came the long-standing Operation Trident, which focused on wider issues of drug-related gang violence. These initiatives were frequently criticised as being discriminatory to black members of the community. However, such criticisms never offered a more effective solution to the problem, in the same way that today's police critics do not offer a solution to the knife crime epidemic. I often think about how many close shaves I had over the years, but in Clapham these were fairly regular occurrence. But there was one event that particularly sticks in my mind. I was working as the operator on Lima 2, the Clapham area car, on a night shift in the summer of 1993. It had been a hot day and it was still fairly warm as we cruised around the south of our patch. I was crewed with the driver Phil Weston, who was a Clapham legend and without a doubt the best proactive thief taker that I've ever worked with. He was a fairly small but incredibly tough Welshman with an unbelievable ability to sniff out criminality and an amazing memory for names, faces and vehicle registrations. He'd been at Clapham for over 20 years at this time, and he later went on to work as a detective on the Met's serious and organised crime team. It's worth emphasising, as an aside here, that these professional policing skills are not acquired overnight. They take many, many years to learn, which is why flooding the current police service with inexperienced rookies is incredibly risky. It was about 2am, and I can remember sitting in the car with the window wound down, listening to the intermittent transmissions coming from the main set radio, as well as the local Clapham channel on my personal radio. 
Phil was always on the lookout and missed absolutely nothing. He could do this whilst also making me laugh with a constant stream of amusing anecdotes that would generally be triggered by passing a point in the road where something funny had happened to him many years before. As we were driving along, suddenly he gunned the engine and went off at some speed, turning the lights off the car. He had obviously seen something that he wasn't happy about, and he often did this to buy us a few moments of time so as not to alert the suspect. I asked him what he'd seen, and he told me that a car just turned rather too quickly into one of the council estates, often a sign that someone wanted to avoid the attentions of the police. We turned into the estate and found the car parked in a dead end. We pulled up about 20 yards away from it and just sat there watching with the engine ticking over. After a couple of minutes, the doors opened and three very large, scary-looking men got out of the car. Phil immediately recognised the front seat passenger as a prominent yardy gangster. They went into a huddle for a moment and then all three started walking away from the car towards our car. They were walking very purposefully very determined, and all were quite grim-faced. The driver had a long black leather coat on which came down to his knees. As they drew closer, the man in the leather coat began to reach inside his coat, but before I could see what he was reaching for, Phil slammed the airy car into reverse and drove at top speed away from the trio, spinning the car around to face the other direction before driving away. We both knew that if we'd stayed there, we would have been shot. I have no doubt whatsoever that they were carrying guns and by the way that they were walking they had made the decision to shoot us. Why? Probably because there was a large quantity of drugs or guns in the car or because one of them or more of them was wanted for serious offences that would guarantee a long prison sentence. I can't prove that we would have been shot but every instinct in my body told me that we were in very great danger. As every good police officer knows, sometimes you've got to tactically withdraw until the odds are stacked more in your favour. And as we used to say, they'll come again. In other words, they're criminals, we'll get them eventually. The need to protect police officers became increasingly clear. And in the mid-1990s, hundreds of officers in the UK were asking law enforcement colleagues in the United States to send them their second-hand body armour. This was obviously incredibly embarrassing for senior officers and the police federation. However, it was not until the early 2000s that the wearing of stab vests was mandated for all operational officers. During my time in the Met, the only time that I felt a little bit better protected was when we went to Hounslow to do our twice-yearly public order refresher training, otherwise known as riot training. We would spend two days there in our flame-proof suits and NATO helmets, running through various tactics, working as a team to deal with all sorts of scenarios in a massive fake town that had been constructed with its own houses, shops, streets and vehicles of all types. I loved the training. It was great fun. At the end of the two days, we would have a full-on riot with hundreds of petrol bombs being thrown at us by the instructors alongside wooden bricks that bloody hurt if they hit an unprotected part of your body. The students would be split into two groups, rioters and cops. I particularly enjoyed being one of the rioters. 
We always used to focus our aim at the inspectors and chief inspectors in command, who wore orange epaulettes on their shoulders, which was hilarious because scores of bricks would all end up being thrown at some poor inspector. I find this less funny when I was an inspector myself many years later and was in that exact same situation. At that time, one of the instructors was a slightly terrifying warrior of an officer called Tracy Axton. She was stunning, with long auburn hair, about six foot tall, built of solid muscle, and she kicked the living crap out of everyone, me included. We called her the Ginger Ninja. One of the exercises we trained for was to go into a room in threes with shields and deal with an armed assailant. I remember going into the room with two other officers to try to deal with her. She was armed with a baseball bat and an iron bar and she literally pummeled all three of us into the ground. When working in Clapham, and this applied to any deprived inner city location in London, there was almost constant aggravation and conflict. Very few people cooperated with the police voluntarily. Anyone who had been through the system would generally refuse to tell you their name when stopped and frequently gave false names. This situation generated a lot of friction and distrust on the street between the police and young people, particularly those who lived in tough neighbourhoods. This sense of distrust was made worse by annoying left-wing radical types who would often interrupt conversations on the street between police officers and young people. Frequently, they would tell the young people we were talking to not to speak to the police, as in their eyes we were the worst kind of fascist oppressors. I can remember one comical incident in Brixton. We were trying to help a couple of young black lads who had been attacked by a group of youths. We were taking their details and writing down the descriptions of their assailants when a car stopped beside us. I jumped a pair of humourless activists in the usual uniforms, which consisted of John Lennon glasses, dodgy, tie-dyed t-shirts, jeans and Doc Martin shoes. The only thing they didn't have were copies of Socialist Worker. They immediately interrupted us, or put their oar in, as we would have said, and tried to pull the two boys away. I told them to clear off and tried to explain that these lads were victims of crime and were trying to investigate what had happened. They refused to listen to us and kept telling the boys not to talk to us before trying to shove Know Your Rights leaflets into their hands. Eventually one of the lads turned round and told them to piss off and mind their own business. So looking confused and downhearted, the pair got back into their car and pissed off to wage war against the fascist state somewhere else. This used to happen quite a lot in South London, and it was especially irritating when such people also had video cameras that they shoved in your face. Many would try to goad us into arresting them for obstruction. This would have been legally justified, but it just wasn't worth the hassle, complaints and inevitable civil action. I can't even imagine how horrible it must be now with camera phones everywhere. By the start of 1994, and after four years on the beat, I felt that I was ready for a new challenge. Life at Clapham was great, but the police service has so many opportunities to try different things, and I'd started to think about my options. Metropolitan Police Special Branch, or SB, as it was referred to, held a strong attraction for me. 
It was the only department in the Met that required applicants to pass a demanding set of tests, an interview and an exam to permit entry. The selection procedure was rigorous and potential applicants were advised to spend a minimum of six months preparing to apply as there was an expectation that candidates had a comprehensive knowledge of current affairs, politics and world events. In due course, I sat and passed all of the tests and after a tough interview, I was offered a posting as a detective constable in Special Branch. After the mandatory leaving drinks with my Clapham comrades, who took the piss mercilessly about me leaving to become a spy, in June 1994, I turned up for work at New Scotland Yard in my smart new suit and tie.